today's uh, scripture reading is from the 13th chapter of Psalms, beginning with the first verse. How long, O Lord, will you forget forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father, as always, we just want to pause here before we dive into your word and acknowledge that we desperately need you today. Every hour of every day we need you and we're especially where as we come to your word that we need your spirit to work in us to be able to understand what you're teaching us here in Psalm 13, to give us encouragement where it's needed, uh, to help us to see more clearly the hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we're asking that whatever, whatever distractions we may have today, uh, whatever things that we may be thinking about, whatever things may be running through our minds, we pray that, as always, those would melt away and that we would have ears to hear what your word has to teach us. Father, we're praying that your son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted through this text in Psalm 13. We're praying that we would be comforted through this psalm of lament, that as we think of times where we might lament, that we would be encouraged by what we read here in Psalm 13. Father, we are desperate in need of you. And so we're asking today that you'd be gracious to us, that you'd minister to us through the preaching of your word, and that you would allow us to leave here today worshiping. That's the goal. We don't want to just gather information. We don't want to just become intellectual consumers of what we're learning here in Psalm 13. But when we leave here today, we want to be worshiping you. We want to be making much of you. We want to have a greater desire to proclaim your name and to take your name to all peoples everywhere. So Father, would you do that for us today through Psalm 13? Would you be gracious to us? It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Well, she didn't come out and say it explicitly. I could tell by the way she was talking and the types of things she was saying that her faith in God was shaken and that her understanding of what God was doing was almost nothing. Now, the fact is the reason she didn't come out and say it explicitly is because I don't think she had the capability of doing so in that moment because she was overwhelmed. The circumstances that led up to this conversation we were having in the hospital were traumatic to say the least. Earlier in the day, she'd received a a phone call or, or somehow had received word that her husband had been hurt in a workplace accident. And it was a traumatic accident. That's actually why we were at the hospital. We'd received a call at the church that we were to go and to visit and check on her and to check on him. And when we got there, it was obvious from the start that things were not good. You could tell that this was going to be a fight for his life. And if somehow he was able to survive that his life would never be the same. He'd had a severe spinal cord injury, and at the very least, barring some miracle, he'd be paralyzed for the rest of his life. I still remember looking at the hospital bed and seeing him struggling for his life, and in that moment, I could tell and I could understand why she was so confused. Just the day before, her husband had been living a perfectly normal life, been doing the things that people normally do, going to work, enjoying time with family, enjoying time doing other things. And in a moment, in a freak accident, everything changed. His health, his freedom, and eventually within the next couple of weeks, his life would be taken away. 
And his wife was left to wonder, and this was what was going on in that conversation in the hospital, what is God doing? Why is he allowing this to happen? My guess is you've been there before. You've been in a situation where you've wondered to yourself, what is God doing here? Why is he doing this? Perhaps for you, it's not so much an incident that happened, but maybe it's an ongoing incident. In other words, this isn't just something that happened in the past, some incident that you can look back to and say, what was he doing? But there's something that's going on now that you say, what is he doing? And why is he allowing this to continue? Maybe there's some health issue in your family. Maybe there's some health issue you're dealing with. Maybe there's some ongoing physical, emotional, relational, spiritual struggle that you just cannot figure out what God is doing. And the question you ask yourself again and again is, how long will he allow this suffering to continue? Well, here's the good news. If you've ever asked that question before, how long? If you're asking that question now, how long? If you will ever ask that question in the future, how long will this last? The good news is that the word of God is not silent in your anguish. In fact, some of the questions that many of you have asked or are asking now or will ask in the future, the why God The how long gods, these are the types of questions that we see again and again in the book of Psalms, and specifically that we see today in Psalm 13. And so my hope is that as we dive into this psalm, as we dive into the word of God here, that we would be encouraged as we're given a blueprint of sorts. Now, it won't be neat and tidy, but it's a blueprint of sorts for how we deal with these types of questions. And at the end of the day, I hope that you are encouraged by what you read here in Psalm 13 that you would see that there is hope even when it seems that all hope is lost. Because the fact is that there will come a day, if there hasn't already been that day, where you will want to ask the difficult questions, why God? And in those moments, psalms like Psalm 13, these psalms of lament, are like a balm for a weary soul. So let's read again here, Psalm 13. Let me remind you, as we read here, this is the Word of God. Psalm 13, starting in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now I think as you read Psalm 13, when you first read it, you'll probably notice that there are three distinct sections here. And in fact, every commentator I read on the Psalms this week would say that there are three distinct sections in Psalm 13. In verses 1 through 2, you have this psalmist lamenting, complaining, bring his, his sorry state before the Lord and just saying, this is where I am. How long, Lord? In verses 3 and 4, you have the psalmist pleading and praying that God would do something. And then in verses 5 through 6, you have the psalmist expressing his confidence in God. And so since this is the way this psalm is set up, I think it's best that that's the way we tackle it this morning. That we go through each of these sections one by one, starting with the lament of the psalmist in verses 1 and 2. Look again. So I want you to see this. I know we've read it already, but I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 this lament, this complaint that he's bringing. He says, How long, 
Oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now it's clear from the start of this psalm that the psalmist is not in a good spot as he starts, that he is in a dark place. In verse 1, he talks about this idea that it feels like God has forgotten him. It feels like God is hiding his face. Now, that second phrase maybe is a bit ambiguous. What does that mean that God is hiding his face? Commentator Derek Kinder, I think, explains further. He says, forgetting and hiding face are both talking about withholding a practical help. But the real hurt was personal. It's a friendship that is clouded over. I think that's a good way of describing what's going on here in verse 1, that it's not just that he feels like the Lord is not helping him in his time of need. It's that he feels as if his friendship with the Lord, his friendship with God has been lost. And so the psalmist is not in a good place. That continues in verse 2. In verse 2, he notes that he has sorrow in his heart all the day long. And he asks the question, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now, to be clear, we don't know what situation the psalmist is facing. We don't know what particular trouble has brought him to this point. But what we do know is that there is unceasing anguish, that there is this sorrow that is deep in his heart, and that there is one question that haunts this psalm, and especially verses 1 and 2. And that question is, how long? In verses 1 and 2, he asks this question five different times. He says, how long will you forget me, God? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted? I wonder, have you ever been there? Have you ever asked that question, how long? I know I have. When we were in the middle of our adoption with Karis, I know I've shared bits and pieces of this story over the years, but there were definitely times where this is the question we were asking. We had a certain time frame in our mind from when Karis should come home. It turns out that God's time frame was radically different. And in the end, I'll say this, that looking back, he was right and we were wrong. I guess that's not surprising, right? Because he's always right. But when we look back, we see his wisdom. But at the time, it was extraordinarily frustrating. I remember we were in Amarillo and there was a a prayer room in our church and I would go into that room, I would shut the door, I would close it and I would get on my face and I would essentially ask this question again and again, how long, how long God will you not reply to our prayers? How long will Karis be stuck in Africa? How long before she will come home? I'm guessing that you've asked those questions before too. How long God before you reply? Now before we go any further, it's probably helpful to stop and ask this question, is that okay? Is it okay for us to lament like this? Is it okay to bring our complaints and say, how long, God, what are you doing? Is that an okay thing for us to do? And I think the answer to that question with some explanation is yes. But before we go any further down that road, I do want to make a distinction here. I want to make a distinction between this question. Is it okay to be angry with God? And is it okay for us to complain or lament to God? I think those are two different questions. Now, two weeks ago when we were at the retreat, As you know, we were working through the Psalms, talking about emotions, and one of the questions that we were asked on Sunday morning is this question, is it okay to be angry with God? And now that I've had a couple of weeks to reflect on that question, I think this is how I'd answer it. I would say, it depends. It depends on what you mean by angry. If by angry, what you mean is that you disapprove of God and his plan, and you are angry and you think that you know better, then yes, that is wrong. 
In fact, John Piper, in an article answering that very question, says this, it is always wrong to disapprove of God in any of his judgments. So if your idea of being angry with God means that you disapprove of him or you disapprove of what he's doing, then that is dangerous territory for a Christian to be in. Now, I'll say this. If you're there, and maybe you're even there today, it's okay to bring that to God because he already knows your heart anyway. So go ahead and confess that to him and ask that he would help that to change and ask that he would help you to repent. But I think that that type of anger is not helpful. But if by anger we simply mean voicing our complaints to God, And by complaining here, I'm not saying complaining in a way that questions his goodness, but just bringing your laments and these types of questions, how long, I think that's a different story. Because I think there's a place for us to voice these laments or these complaints to God, provided that we're not disapproving of God and his character. There's a way to complain that would be wrong too. But if you're asking the questions, why God, how long, but you're doing in a way that trusts him, I think there's a place for that in the Christian life. In fact, J.I. Packer, this is in Tim Keller's book on prayer, says this, In the Bible, when bad things happen to good people, they complain with great freedom and a considerable length to their God. And Scripture does not seem to regard these complaining prayers as anything other than wisdom. Now, I think it's probably helpful for us to avoid the use of the word anger just because usually what we mean is disapproving of a person or of his agenda, in this case, God. And as I said, I think that's a dangerous place for a Christian to be. And if that's where we are, we need to admit that. We need to say that. He already knows our heart and asks that he helps us. But in light of what we're reading here in Psalm 13, I think what we can say, and what we read not only in Psalm 13, but throughout the rest of the Psalms and the rest of the Scripture, I think we can say it's okay for us to lament to God. It's okay for us to bring our complaints to him. The difference is this. Anger, if we're defining it as disapproval of a person, calls into question the goodness and the character of God. But when we lament before God, we can still, in that process, trust Him and trust His goodness. That's exactly what's happening here in Psalm 13. In Psalm 13, He's bringing this lament, this complaint. He's saying, how long, God? Why have you forgotten me? Why are you hiding your face from me? But it's obvious in the end that He still trusts God. If you look at the way this psalm ends, He still trusts God. Now, that doesn't mean He understands what God is doing. And that doesn't mean he's even happy that he's in the current situation that he's in. But he's holding these two truths in tension. He knows the character of God, and he knows the character of God is good, but he also knows his current situation doesn't seem to reflect the character of God that he knows. And so that's why he can, I think, okay, in a genuine and sincere way, and in an appropriate way, ask the question, how long? He's holding these things in tension. He still trusts God, but he doesn't understand what God's doing. And so he cries out, how long, O Lord? Now, that said, I think we need to acknowledge here and remind ourselves that we are in the Psalms. That he is expressing his emotions through poetry and through uh, song. And so we need to be careful here to say that he's not giving us a window into all of his theological thoughts. Because he's in the Psalms, he doesn't feel the need to qualify his statements. He doesn't feel the need to say, how long, God, have you forgotten me? But I know you really haven't forgotten me because I trust that you never abandoned us. He doesn't feel the need to say that because he's in the Psalms, right? Because he's expressing his emotions through poetry and through song. Now, if he was in the book of Romans or a different genre of scripture, he might have made some of those qualifications, given some of those theological nuances. I don't think that the psalmist actually forgot or actually believed that God had forgotten him. But what he's doing is he's just giving voice to his emotions. 
So let's keep in mind here that we're in the Psalms, and that as such, this is more concentrated on his emotions than it is on giving a long theological explanation. But I'll say this. Do not confuse, do not confuse what you feel to be true with what you know to be true. Okay? I think that's an important distinction to make here. It's one thing to say, I feel like God has left me. It's quite another to say, I know that God has left me. Those two things are radically different. Right? Let's not confuse how we feel with what we know to be true. The first, saying that we feel like God has left us, that's an honest expression of our emotions. But the latter, saying, I know God has left me, that's calling into question his goodness and his character. And we want to say there's a huge difference between those two things. And in Psalm 13, I think what the psalmist is doing, he's not calling to question the goodness of God. That's evidenced by the way the psalm ends. But what he is doing is he's saying, I feel like you have left me, God. I feel like you have turned your face against me. Our goal as Christians is to honestly and appropriately express our emotions without calling into question the character of God. Now, all that to say, all of those disclaimers aside, I think we have to say that Psalm 13 does give us, and other psalms as well, does give us a right or maybe uh, the permission, is a better way of saying it, to voice our complaints to God in the form of questions like this. Listen, if you are going through something right now, and I suspect that many, in here, many of you in here today are going through something. If you're going through some situation that is extraordinarily difficult and it feels like it is just burdening your soul, I'll say this. I think an appropriate place to start is by lamenting and asking the question, God, what are you doing? How long, O oh Lord, will this continue? To bring your frustrations to him. I think you can feel the freedom to acknowledge your current state. I think if we're being honest, sometimes in the church, and I'm not just meaning New Hope here, although I think this is probably true of New Hope too, but in the church, we don't do a good enough job of allowing people to lament. We want people quickly to go to the third stage. If there's a three-stage progression here in Psalm 13, with the last stage being this confidence in God, we want people to be there, and that's a good instinct, but we don't give them the space to live in verses 1 and 2 first. We want to rush people and tell them, you can't feel that way. Have confidence in God. And that's true, and that's right, and that's good, and that is where the psalmist ends. But I think we need to give people space to be able to lament and to say, what is going on? I think we need to say, in light of what we read here in Psalm 13, that's okay to do that. Listen, if you're here today, and it feels like God has abandoned you, if it feels like you have lost your friendship with him, I just want you to know you are not alone. The psalmist knows your pain. And I would guess that many other people in this room know your pain also. Maybe even today they feel the same way. So feel the frustration to offer up your lament, to ask the questions, how long? But, and this is key, do not stop there. And that's the critical part about this psalm. Yes, the psalmist offers up this lament, but that's not where the psalm ends. Right? We don't want to stop there. So feel the freedom to lament. Feel the freedom to ask the questions, why God, how long doing so while you're still trusting him? But then make sure that you are turning and then pleading with him to do something about it. Look at verses 3 and 4. All right, so here's the next section, right? First we have the lament, now we have the praying and the pleading. Verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now I think to me this is the critical turning point in the psalm. 
Yes, the psalmist feels overwhelmed by his, uh, his burden and his sorrow. Yes, the psalmist feels like God has forgotten him and turned his face from him. But he does not leave it there. Instead, he turns and he pleads with God. God, please intervene here. Do something. He appeals to God to answer him. He asks God to give light to his eyes, which I think simply means give spiritual and physical life. And he petitions God to respond so that his enemies cannot rejoice over him. Listen, it's one thing for us to lament, but we cannot stop there. And the psalmist does not stop there. He pleads with God. He says, God, do something. And so in verses 1 and 2, he's saying, how long, God? Why will you not respond? And now in verses 3 and 4, he cries out to God. He says, God, respond. Now, does it take faith to cry out to God when it feels like he's abandoned you? Well, yes. Right? Does it take faith to cry out to him as if he's your friend when it feels like he's not your friend anymore? And of course, the answer is yes. But this is where we find hope, by running to the mercy seat. Because it's there when we go to him in prayer that we find hope and that despair passes away. We cry out to God when we feel his abandonment because by faith we believe that he would never actually abandon us. We cry out to God when we feel like his face is turned against us because by faith we believe that he would never actually cease to be our friend. We cry out to God when it feels like we are in the ashes because by faith we believe that he can raise us up out of the ashes. And so we plead with him. Friends, maybe you are feeling the bitterness of affliction right now. Maybe you are feeling the pain of going through a world that is messed up. Maybe you are discouraged by the current state of your life. But if that's you, my question is simply this. Are you crying out to him? Are you pleading with him to intervene? Are you asking him to help you in your sorry state? Now, maybe you would say this. Maybe you'd say, well, I've been doing that. Listen, I've been praying this way for a really long time, and God has not answered. And so I gave up a long time ago. And I just want you to know, if that's where you are, I've been there too. There have been times where I've cried out for months, or even years, and God has not answered. And in that moment, I began to wonder, is it worth it to cry out here? But for those who might be tempted to give up, and I'm putting myself in that category, I think what we need to acknowledge here is that is the exact same situation the psalmist is facing here. The reason why he has to ask how long is presumably because for a long time God has not answered. And yet, he still pleads and prays to God. Listen, there are certain people in my life that since I became a Christian in 1999, 16 years ago, I've been praying for their salvation. And I've been praying that God would rescue them. And God has still not answered. Should I give up? There are people that you have been praying for. Maybe it's not for that issue, but maybe it is. Maybe you're praying for their salvation. Or maybe there's some issue that they're going for. And you've been praying. And you've been praying for days or weeks or months or years or even decades. And God has not answered. Should you give up? I think the answer from Psalm 13 is no. You should keep praying. You should keep pleading. And in the end, you should rest in the character of God. You should have confidence in God's character. In fact, that's how we see the psalm end here. In verses 5 and 6, I want you to see how the psalmist ends, how he lands at the end. Verse 5 says this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now here's a question for you. How can this psalmist have confidence in God's salvation when it seems that God is not saving him? 
How can the psalmist say that God deals bountifully with him when at the moment it seems that God is not dealing bountifully with him? Or to make it more more personal, how can you be confident in the goodness of God when it seems like God is not being good to you? How can you be confident that he will deal favorably with you when it doesn't seem like he's dealing favorably with you now? And let's be honest here. For a lot of you in the room, those are not theoretical questions that you just talk about when you're sitting around the campfire talking about deep theological things. No, these are things that you have asked time and again that maybe you're even asking today. You're saying, how can I be confident in God's goodness when it seems like my life is not good right now? How can I be confident that he will answer when it seems like he never answers? For some of you, that is the reality that you are living in right now. Because for some of you, it feels like God has abandoned you. So my question is, how can you be confident? And I think my answer would be this. The reason you can have a present confidence in the character of God is because of his past work and his future promises. The reason, let me say that again, the reason you can have a present confidence in the character of God is because of his past work and his future promises. Now listen, as Christians, we have a particular advantage. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will never abandon us. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will never forsake us. And the reason we know that to be true is because of his past work. And especially and particularly his past work on the cross. That is how we know that God loves us. Now listen, the psalmist didn't have that advantage, right? There are other things that the psalmist could look back to and say, oh, we've seen God's goodness in the past. But on this side of the cross, as followers of Christ, we are able to say without hesitation, yes, he loves us. And we know that to be true because Jesus died on the cross for our sin. Listen, how much does God love us? Well, we rebelled and hated our creator. We routinely trampled on his commands and hated him. That's the way the Bible describes us apart from Christ. And yet, despite the fact we deserve nothing but the righteous wrath of God, in his love, God sent his son to pay the punishment for us. And he did all of this for us while we were still his enemies. I think sometimes we forget that he did all this, as Romans 5 would tell us, while we were still his enemies. It's pretty incredible. Uh, earlier this week, one of my former students asked his, his girlfriend's father, so his future father-in-law, for permission to marry his girlfriend. And uh, this particular father was one who liked to lo- ask a lot of questions in response to that. And so one of the questions he said was this. He said, well, would you lay down your life for my daughter? And uh, I think that's a great, fair question. He said yes. But imagine this. What if he would have, instead of asking that question, asked, would you lay down your life for your enemy? Now, my friend really wanted to get married. He probably would have said yes anyway. But that's a different question, right? That's a completely different question. It's one thing for me to say to you, hey, would you lay down your life for your family? If you head out the doors today and you start going down the street here and someone pulls up with a gun and the choice is, will you step in front of a bullet for your family or not? Most of you would probably say yes. But what if the person you despise the most, the person that has made your life the most miserable, the person that has routinely done everything they can to make your life as miserable as possible? What if that person was outside and the choice is you could jump in and you could try to defend them and leave your family behind or not, what would you do? That's a completely different question, right? But Romans 5 says that Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. It would have been one thing if he would have died for us while we were loving and adoring him. But the fact is that no one loved and adored him. 
In fact, all have hated him. All have turned against him. And yet, he still died for us. Do you get that? Do you understand how radical that is? The fact is, you may say, oh yeah, I'd die for my enemy too. But the reality is that if you were pressed with that actual decision, my guess is almost no one would actually die for their enemy. Almost no one would jump into a gunfight to protect the person that they least like. And yet, Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. And on top of that, it's not just that he died for us. That would be incredible enough. It's not just that he died a gruesome death on the cross. It's that he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Do you understand how awful that is? It was so awful that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is thinking about the very idea of bearing the wrath of God, he is sweating drops of blood. Do you understand the magnificence of the gospel? Do you get that? Do you understand his love? Do you understand that he died for you while you were still his enemy? Do you understand that he bore the wrath of God on your behalf? If you do, then you will have confidence in the present. And you will be able to believe verses like Romans 8.32. In fact, I want you to turn there because I think it's, it's a powerful way of reminding us of the love of God. So Romans chapter 8, verse 32. <clears throat> As some have said, and I would agree, Romans 8 is maybe the richest theological chapter in all of the Bible. One of the, uh, no doubt, one of the best chapters for my money in all of the Bible. Romans 8 is filled with great verses. One of my favorites is Romans 8, verse 32. It says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When you understood what it cost Jesus to die for you, when you understood what he was doing on the cross, taking the wrath of God on your behalf, then and only then will Romans 8.32 make sense to you. Because here's the argument of Romans 8.32. If God did not spare his son, but Jesus took the wrath of God on our behalf, how will God not also give us everything else that we need for life and godliness? Our confidence in present circumstances is based on the past work of God, most notably the cross. If we believe Romans 8.32 to be true, then what we're saying is, listen, if he gave up his son, he will give you everything else you need. And so here's how that starts to work itself out practically. Let me, let me go back to the situation with Karis. Right, we're praying for God to answer and for Karis to come home from Africa. And I think it's still appropriate in that circumstance for me to cry out, how long? How long, God, before you do this? And it's, it's appropriate for me to be in anguish and to be lamenting. But in that moment, as I'm doing that, I'm reminding myself of the past work of God. And I'm saying to myself, listen, I know that God cares for me because he sent his son to die for me. And if that's true, then even though he seems to not be answering me here and he seems to not be caring I know that that's not actually true. I know that he does care, and I know that he does love me because he sent his son to die for me. And so I can accept whatever he gives me in response to my uh, my prayers for Karis. Right? There's a practical outworking here that if we believe in the past work of Christ, it gives us a confidence in the present work of God. Listen, it's the cross that gives us hope. When it seems that God has abandoned us, we look to the cross and we know he will never abandon us. And this is why every single week we must come back to what Jesus did on the cross. I'm not just doing this because I'm supposed to. Because I'm supposed to talk about the cross. Because somehow I'm contractually obligated to say something about Jesus every week. No, the reason I come back to this every week is because this is the only hope we have. 
This is the only hope we have that God is for us when things seem like they are down. This is the only hope we have if you are here today and you don't know Christ. You have never repented of your sins and trusted Christ. The only hope you have is that Jesus died on the cross for sins and rose three days later. The only hope you have that you will be able to live anything different at all is because you believe the gospel to be true and it's pressing down deeper into your heart. And so this is why every single week we keep coming back to Christ and him crucified. This is why in Ephesians 3, Paul says, I pray that you may have an understanding of the depths and the riches of God's love for us. Because it's the good news of what Jesus did on the cross and his love for us that gives us confidence no matter what the situation is. And so this is why we never stop talking about the cross. Never. This is why every single week we must keep coming back to this. Because as we understand his love for us, as we get that in the deep parts of who we are, this will inspire us to have confidence even in present difficulty. And this will inspire us to live differently because we know that he is for us and that he loves us. This is the good news of the cross. So we look back to the past work of God to gain confidence. But we also look ahead to the future promises. Romans 8, again, verse 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, a passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We look ahead to the future promises of God. Listen, the reality is that there may be long stretches of time where we are asking how long. And let's be honest, those are really difficult times. When you have extended period of trials, when you have a trial that seems to go on for period after period, year after year, decade after decade, these are the most difficult trials oftentimes. But in light of what we read in Romans 8, in light of what we read in 2 Corinthians 4, the answer to the question, how long, is always, in the grand scheme of eternity, not that long. In the grand picture of eternity. We need to remember that in light of all of eternity, our trials, no matter how long they may seem, they will not last forever. Yes, there may be periods where we face extended sorrows, and yes, those sorrows may last for months or years or decades. And some of you may be in the midst of those trials right now. But in the midst of those sorrows that seem to go on forever, know this, in comparison to the eternal joy before us, in comparison to eternity that is still to come, those trials are small in comparison to eternity. We know that one day he will rescue us from the pit of despair. One day he will deal bountifully with us. One day we will stop asking the question, how long? And we know that's the case because the Bible tells us so. We know that there will come a day when there will be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more tears. And so it's the hope of the future promises that sustains us in the midst of present difficulty. And so it's both looking back to the past work of God and looking ahead to the future promises that gives us confidence in our present difficulties. Now, all that to say, I want you to know this. I know that Psalm 13 is not a simple how-to guide for how to deal with sorrow and lamenting. I know that it doesn't work so simple as to think it's just a one, two, three step, and you know that too. 
Listen, I know that if you're going through some difficulty, you won't think to yourself, okay, step one, I'll lament. Tomorrow, I'll pray. Day three, I'll have confidence in God, and it'll be nice and easy. We all know that's not the way grief works. Every person who's ever had any sort of grief, which I'm guessing is all of us, knows that it's not as simple as one, two, three. And so hear me, I'm not at all suggesting that when we talk about Psalm 13, we're just setting up this nice and easy little pattern. Just do step one, and then step two, and then step three, and everything will be great. Because it doesn't work that way. There may be periods where you lament, and you keep lamenting, and you keep lamenting, and that season goes on for a really long time. And then maybe you'll come out of it, and you'll have to go back to it. Right? It's not nice and easy. It's not this simple linear progression. Just do step one, and step two, and step three. Listen, there may be times where you have to go between the stages. There may be times where you have to fight with every shred of your energy to believe some small way that God is good and that he's working for you. There may be times where you don't even know what to do. Listen, there may come a time where you get a call in the middle of the night that changes your life forever. And in that moment, you will not think, oh, Psalm 13, easy, one, two, three. You will not think that. So hear me when I say I'm not trying to present this as some sort of easy how-to for how to deal with sorrow and lament. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is I think there's something helpful here in Psalm 13. I think there's a permission to cry out and to lament when things are hard. And I think there's a wisdom in pleading with God and continuing to plead with Him even when it seems like He's not answering. And I think there's a hope as we look to the past work of God and the future promises of God, that he is working in our present circumstances. So yes, Psalm 13 is not an easy, here's what you should do when it comes to sorrow and grief, but it was never meant to be that way. But what Psalm 13 is, I think, is it offers us a glimmer of hope. It offers us a small portrait for how we can begin to take a step forward when the difficulty comes. And not surprisingly, that portrait ends up being a picture of Jesus Christ because that is where hope is found. And so whatever limit you're going through today, whatever limit you'll be going through tomorrow, whatever limit you'll be going through years from now, remember this, that there is hope and it's found at the cross and it's found in the future kingdom that is still to come. That's where our hope is found. And so may we run there in times of difficulty May we run to the cross where there is mercy to be found. May we run to him knowing that he's good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the realness of your word. God, we acknowledge that life is not always easy. But we thank you that we have the hope of the cross. And we thank you that we have the hope of your future promises. God, for those who are here today and are struggling, I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that we as a church would come alongside them and comfort them. For those who are here today and are rejoicing over something that's happened, I pray that we would rejoice with them also, and in that joy they would be able to reach out to those who are maybe struggling. God, we pray that we would be a group of people who would love your word We would love psalms like Psalm 13, that we would love the hope that we have in the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we're grateful. We're thankful that we have your word and ever-present help in times of trouble. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.